The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Uh, More so than many other ministers in the presbytery, I've seen Jonathan really exhibit the character of Christ, even in the face of uh, adversity and, and significant challenges. And that's one of the things that I've always told students here. If you get a chance to get uh, and meet Jonathan Morsh, spend as much time with him as you can, because I hope and pray that in that time that you spend with him, uh, his godliness will rub off on you. So it's a real joy to be able to have him here this morning with us. Jonathan. Well, hello. Good morning. Uh, thank you uh, very much for that kind introduction. Although my 16-year-old son would beg to differ with you, uh, according to him, I am not cool. Um, but, you know, it's, just, it's amazing how fast things change. So it's a privilege to be with, you here to be with you here today and to open up God's Word together with you. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 8. So let us give ear to God's Word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he, gar- does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers." Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, and hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I think it'd be clear uh, to say that we live in a litigious culture. Thinking about, uh, you know, the lawsuits that go on amongst the major tech giants, whether it be Apple uh, suing Samsung for patent infringement or vice versa, or uh, the political wrangling that goes on within the courts in Washington, or even the fact that you cannot so much as lift a finger without signing some sort of waiver or getting some sort of insurance. At least we live in the fear of the fact that people can sue you at any point. And it seems as if if you want to get anything done in this world today, you better have deep pockets, you better lawyer up, and prepared 
prepare to defend yourself in court. Of course, that's the way of the world, but how are things in the church? We would imagine that our Lord should, would tell us, it shall not be so among you. And yet, sadly, we see in the papers and here in the news that even Christians, uh, uh, churches themselves, are divided and they bring their civil complaints to each other in court. Well, that's exactly what was going on in Corinth when Paul was writing uh, the Corinthians in the mid-50s, and he rebukes them in our passage today. And yet, as we consider this familiar passage, I think there's two points that I want to highlight, two reasons why the Apostle Paul uh, tells the Corinthians that they ought not to be doing this and why it is so tragic that Christians were bringing fellow Christians to the civil courts. The first one is that the church was failing to act as the church. And the second point is that Christians were failing to act like Christ. As we look at our passage today, it may seem at first glance that the Apostle Paul is addressing a new topic. After all, he picks up this topic of lawsuits amongst the believers there in chapter 6. But when we consider the broader context, when we consider the fact that in chapter 5, he was rebuking the, the Corinthians for their failure to exercise godly church discipline in the case of that notorious sinner who had taken his stepmother to be his wife. When we consider the fact that the broader context is the context of church discipline, then we see how it is that this topic of uh, the church being able to handle these cases within their own midst, we see the context flow together. You see, at the end of chapter 5, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for the fact that they were preoccupied with judging those who were outside the church. And he reminded them of the fact that judgment should begin in the household of God. So they ought to be disciplining those open sinners within their midst. So here we see flowing into the topic of of handling these lawsuits or handling these grievances that brothers have with one another. I think it's clear that these grievances that Paul mentions in verse 1 are what we might call civil claims and not criminal cases. We don't have time to go into it, but I think the context is clear. Roman law, as uh, our law today, distinguishes between civil crimes or or civil complaints and criminal cases. These are clearly civil claims that the members of the church had with one another, whether it be dispute over money or breach of contract or damages or the like. And Paul rebukes them. He says, how dare you bring these civil complaints before the unrighteous? It's interesting that Paul uses that term to to describe the the judges or the members of the jury of the civil courts there at Corinth. He calls them unrighteous. And we might wonder, well, how are we to reconcile this type of language that the Apostle Paul uses? How might we reconcile that with, for example, what we see in Romans chapter 13, where Paul tells us that, that every soul ought to be subject to the governing authorities. And those governing authorities have been appointed by God and that they are God's servants for our good. How is it that we, uh, that those same people that we ought to submit to, Paul can call unrighteous? Well, there is evidence uh, from what we know about first century Corinth and Roman law at the time. There is pretty clear evidence that the provincial courts there at Corinth were actually extremely crooked and that the decks were stacked highly in favor of the rich and powerful. 
Let me just give you a few examples. For one, you couldn't even bring a charge against somebody if they were of a higher rank in, in society than you. So you could only bring a charge against somebody who was your equal or your inferior in court. Second of all, there was a requirement to put up the money that you would stand to lose up front, which would be a huge financial hindrance for those who were poor. This may surprise you, but lawyers in the ancient world actually charged exorbitant rates. And so we find out that there's actually nothing new under the sun. Jury members, those that would compose your jury who would decide the case, were composed entirely of wealthy Roman citizens. And so you would see there would be a natural bias for them to decide in favor of one like them. And finally, the one who was found guilty would have to pay additional financial damages on top of what he owed. And this might be what Paul had in, has in mind at the end of the passage when he says, you defraud your brothers. Not only do they have to repay you what they owe, but, but uh, there are, uh, on top of that, financial damages. And yet, as crooked as the courts were there at Corinth, I don't think that's why Paul is necessarily calling these uh, judges unrighteous. I mean, Paul himself stood before Gallio, the proconsul there uh, of that region, and got a somewhat fair hearing, at least uh, the, he d- refused to decide the case. I think the main reason why Paul calls these uh, the, 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 uh, the civil courts unrighteous is because what he says in verse 6 is because they are unbelievers. That is, they do not have the grace and spirit of Christ and thus do not accept the things of God because they are folly to them. They embrace the wisdom of the world as opposed to the wisdom of God that is shown to us primarily through Christ crucified. That's why Paul uh, finds it so tragic that Christians are immediately running to the civil courts in order to settle their grievances. But as crooked as those courts were and as stacked in the favor of the rich and powerful as they may have been, that is not the main reason that the Apostle Paul gives for the Corinthians to settle their disputes within house. Look there in verse 2. He asks a rhetorical question. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You see, here he turns their eyes to uh, not, not the civil world around them, but he turns their eyes to what they have in Christ Jesus, to the eschatological reality that awaits them as those who are united to Christ Jesus. He says, you are going to judge the world. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, we see that part of the promise of salvation for God's people, and I'm thinking in particular of what we see there in Daniel chapter 7, part of the promise of salvation for God's people is that God's people will stand together with him and condemn the sinful unbelieving world, condemn those nations that had persecuted them at the last day. And Jesus repeats that promise, putting a, 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 a twist on it in Matthew 19, when he says, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he repeats this promise in Revelation chapter 3. The one who, the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. And so as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who are united to Christ, we need not fear 
judgment day because for us, judgment has passed. What we have to look forward to is being openly acknowledged and acquitted and vindicated before the world as we appear together with Christ in glory. And part of the privilege of being united to Christ is that we get to stand together with him at the last day and judge the living and the dead. Let's just let that sink in for a moment. We, we often don't think about that as part of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And yet, if that is true of us, if we have that immense privilege and somber responsibility at the last day, that should inform the church's actions in the here and now. Because we are united to Christ. We have the Spirit of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to say, well, are you incompetent then? Making an argument from the greater to the lesser. We who are the first fruits of the new creation, if we are to judge the world, how much more? Should we be able to judge these relatively minor disputes that inevitably arise within the church? These, as Paul says, these trivial cases. Trivial in light of final day judgment. You see, as bad as it was for believers to be dragging each other to court, the real tragedy in our passage is that the church was failing to live in light of the fact that we are united to the risen Christ that we have his spirit, that we've been given the mind of Christ, and we are spiritual people who are able to judge all things and and ourselves are judged by no one. We have his word, we have his spirit, we are able to uh, make righteous and just decisions, and and God has uh, given us the power to do that. So Paul reiterates his point by saying, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more things pertaining to this life? So that's the first point. We see the church failing to act as the church as it is unable uh, and or at least shirks the responsibilities of settling these things, uh, these, these cases that arise within the courts. But then we see the second point that Paul highlights here. If the first tragedy was the church was failing to act as the church. The second tragedy is that Christians were failing to act like Christ. And that's what he says there in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You see, people go to court to win. And that was almost guaranteed for those who were rich and powerful. And yet the Apostle Paul says, look, if you as a Christian take your brother to court, you're not winning. You've already lost. You've already lost. Why? Because you've shown that you are conformed to this world rather than transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've already lost because you are not taking up your cross and following after your Lord, but you are following after the world and you're using the world systems in order to defraud your brother. That's why he asks these questions. Why not rather suffer wrong? Following the example of our Lord who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The attitude of a follower of Jesus Christ should be able to forfeit our rights rather than harm our brother. We should rather prefer to suffer financial loss than bring reproach upon the name of Christ and division within the church. So the motivation, whenever we have issues with one another, the motivation should be, I don't care about the money. I care about my brother. We shouldn't be motivated by greed, but we should be motivated by love. 
And in giving these things up, even forfeiting our rights, forfeiting what we might claim to be legally ours, we show that we are followers after our Lord Jesus Christ, and he promises us and and tells us that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And yet our Lord promises us that if we give up our rights now, if we forfeit uh, the privileges and, and response, the, uh, our privileges that we have in this life, we have an abundance of, of, of wealth that is stored up for us in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor lawyers can come to take away. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. We thank you that we have the privilege of being united together with you, that we have been given your spirit and the mind of Christ. And so help us, O Lord, to take up our cross and follow after you daily. Help the church as well to live in light of the heavenly realities that is true of us and help us to be uh, uh, faithful in all of our callings. Bless us the rest of this day, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.